0: to
1: Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life
0: in Accounting.
1: It's funny, I was, I don't remember where I was, maybe Yosemite? It was someplace like that where I had to drive to the top of the mountain so that I could get enough cell signal to get like two bars to be able to log into my Wi-Fi and get like an expense report paid for somebody that had to have it tomorrow to go on a trip or something like that.
0: Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA, and your host for Life and Accounting, a podcast production of Where Accountants Go... Dot com. That clip was from Joseph Rugger. And this is going to be an interesting interview for just about everybody. Joseph works 100% remotely. Yes, I said 100% remote. It took a little while for him to get there, and it definitely was done in baby steps. But he's at the point now where he travels where he wants When he wants and still does some of the more deadline oriented accounting tasks, such as ensuring payroll gets done on time for his employer. Sometimes he has to drive halfway up or down a mountain to get good enough internet connection to do this, but he always gets the job done. And like I said, it's all remote. I want to give a disclaimer before we get started that this obviously isn't for everyone, and likely it isn't for every job role either, honestly, but it's a great story of how Joseph went from the traditional Monday through Friday office accounting job to now traveling all over the world and continuing to handle key job functions. Another disclaimer is that although it's fun, it's not like you're on vacation all the time. And Joseph addresses this later on in the podcast. There's definitely more work to it than some may think. But overall, the really cool thing is that Joseph is handling all the needs for his employer and some side clients, but doing it on his terms and consequently leaning. His his life on his terms as well. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. If you do find value in this episode for yourself, please check us out online. You can find us at whereaccountantsgo.com. We have all kinds of audio and written accounting career-focused materials. We have other books. We have blogs. We have, of course, all our other podcasts and even a few tools for employers as well. If you are looking to grow your own career, one publication that you may want to check out is How to Ace the Phone Interview. It's a two-page show Short document for individuals that are currently looking for jobs or going to be in the near future and they want to level up their performance on phone interviewing specifically. You can get that at our website. And once again, that is whereaccountantsgo.com. It's called How to Ace the Phone Interview. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started with Joseph. Well,
1: hello, Joseph. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you getting a chance to visit. Thanks to Lindsay Stevenson for putting us together. I understand she was one of your other podcast guests,
2: so thanks, Lindsay, for putting us together. Yes, I get some of our best guest suggestions from previous guests, so that really is a blessing, definitely. Well, for our audience, we have another interesting guest on the show today. We have Joseph Ruger, and technically Joseph is from the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but that's not really telling the whole story. I'm not sure you can say that he's really from that area per se anymore because he works 100% remote these days, and he's still doing what we all would immediately recognize as typical accounting work. It's just all remote. I don't want to give away too much of the story in the beginning, but I know from our short five-minute conversation, conversation on the front end that we're going to touch on international travel for sure and bungee jumping and I'm sure a few other cool things. Before we bring the audience into, you know, what is your somewhat wild ride of a life these days, which really is cool, by the way. Let's start at the beginning so so we know how you got to where you are today because that's a really important part for us. What initially led you to think about pursuing accounting as a possible career in the first place?
1: Yeah, great question. I was born and raised in North Little Rock, Arkansas. And, you know, a lot of people talk about accounting being a family profession. Neither my mother nor father were in accounting, but I had an uncle that worked for the state of Arkansas. He was the manager of the tax credit. And I remember when I was a really little kid, kind of when you used to go tag along with mom and dad, when they would do important stuff before you were too old to leave by yourself. I remember going over to my uncle Tom's house, we would be in the background and he would be helping my mom and dad fill out their taxes. Now, he wasn't a CPA at the time, but I remember us having to go somewhere to have somebody fill out their individual tax return. And I remember that being one of my first exposures to accounting. And then fast forward a couple of years when I was in high school, I worked as a summer intern at the Department of Finance Administration. I worked in the motor fuel tax section as summer help. And for as summer help in high school, You weren't exactly given the best jobs that you can imagine. I was doing stuff like pulling staples and filing things and taking this year's file and putting them down in the basement and that kind of thing. But one thing that stuck out to me when I was in high school and I was working this summer job for motor fuel is these really mysterious people would show up about once a month and they were all suited up and they looked really sharp and they didn't say anything. And I wondered, like, who these people were. They were going through our files. And so I asked one of the people that worked full-time for Motor Fuel. I was like, hey, hey who is that in the suit over there, not talking to anybody, kind of being by themselves and going through all the records? They said, oh. Those are the auditors. And I was like, ooh, they look important. So that was kind of my first exposure to a little bit of the auditing world where the auditors for the DFNA that were inside of Motor Fuel Tax. And they just had this aura and this mystique about being important. And nobody wanted to bother them. And they were always had this real concentrated look on their face. So that was kind of my first couple of pieces of exposure to just accounting in general and a little bit of the CPA world at the Department of Finance and Administration. When I ended up going to college on a baseball scholarship and played college baseball for Lyon College in Batesville, Arkansas, and as I was thinking about what to study my freshman year, I distinctly remember this conversation. I was in the Lyon building, the business and economics building. Knew I wanted to study something in business that always fascinated me about Uh, creating products and driving revenues and making profitability. And I really liked to study the stock market at the time and figure out how to make money in the stock market. I love the ideas of compound interest. So I knew I wanted to do something in the business world. And one of the older baseball players and I, we were talking before practice one day at the business building, and he said, you're a freshman this year. This was circa 1999, 2000. He said that the job growth and the job possibilities for accountants and CPAs is expected to go significantly higher in the next five to 10 years. So I was good at math and good with numbers and got a chance to take my first accounting class, not until my sophomore year. That was the first seed that was planted in my mind of, hey, this might actually be something that is good to study and would be worthwhile to form a career in. You know, If this older baseball player says so, it's got to be true, right? The upperclassman tells you something. They've got more years of experience and more wisdom. So of course, <laughs> that's where I wanted to go. So that's how I ended up getting into
2: studying accounting at flying. That's too cool. I'm glad it was accounting that he suggested. You know, who knows what you know he may have suggested.
1: <laughs> I get to hang out with him and his family in North Carolina a couple of months back, and I said, "Do you remember Luke that time we were in?" The... He was like, "I totally don't remember that at all." I said, "That was what got me on the path to study accounting. Accounting and economics was his recommendation. He said accounting for the practical side of it, economics to understand the whole big picture of what
2: goes on and how capital markets work." Interesting. Did you end up doing a double major or something like that, or did you just... Yeah, I ended up
1: finishing with three majors at Lyon. I did accounting, economics, and I finished... My senior year, I looked at my schedule and figured out if I took 34 hours and took some summer school, I could finish a third major. So the third major I finished was business administration with a finance concentration. So I ended up
2: doing three majors in college. Interesting. Okay. So which direction did you go in the beginning? What was your first job like or your first few jobs like?
1: Great question. So my first job out of college, I always like to tell people this, Mark, my first job out of college, I went to work for my collegiate fraternity. So my job was to travel the country and hang out with college kids. That was my first professional gig. Now, as you can imagine, Mark, it was a rough job, but somebody had to do it. So that somebody might as well have been me. So that was my first job, and I really enjoyed that. I got a chance to do about 65 campus visits, traveled almost coast to coast, working for my fraternity, and taught a Dale Carnegie sales class on how to recruit new members. I helped them out with their chapter finances, did some just good work, and met with the campus reps and all that stuff. And my salary, I always like to tell people this, my salary at the time for this job was $17,000 a year. And I figured out after about a year of doing this that I was too smart to not make any money. So I did that for a year. And after that, ended up enrolling in graduate school full-time. That job was in Indianapolis, Indiana. I enrolled in graduate school full-time and did a master's in professional accounting at IU, the Kelly School of Business on their Indianapolis campus. Did that, and through the course of that work, On campus, got a chance to do some, a couple of different internships, and then landed my first, what you would call, big boy, big girl job. I ended up working for a regional
2: accounting firm out of Indianapolis, Indiana, and worked there for about two years. Okay. I have to ask this, because we're going to get to the remote work and stuff, and now you're... I didn't know about this fraternity job, you know, traveling the world. It's good you took one for the team there, by the way. Thanks for doing that. Somebody had to do it, yeah. you know. <laughs> That's right. When did you end up becoming a
1: CPA? Did you put uh, it
2: off for a while? Or?
1: No, I didn't. I actually ended up going to grad school. And while I was in grad school, I started figuring out about the CPA license and the CPA exam and those kinds of things. And everybody that I talked to basically said the same thing it was get this exam done sooner rather than later. The further you are out of school, the more difficult it's going to be for you to study and to make time, especially if you get married and have kids, and you've got this big exam to study for, the sooner that you can get this done, the better. So after I finished graduate school, I had my 150 hours in order to sit for the exam, and I sat for the exam in the state of Indiana. So I ended up, took the Becker CPA review class and ended up taking the exam over the course of, I don't know, whatever it was, nine ten months, something like that. And I was one of the first cohorts, I guess you could call it, to go through the computerized exam. they just moved, I think it was a year prior was the last paper and pencil exam. So we got to study for one section at a time. And a lot of people ask me about how difficult the CPA exam was. And I get a chance to talk to students now. They're like, man, we hear that test is so hard and the failure rate's so high. Did you find it to be difficult? And I tell them the same thing every time. I tell them it was the easiest test I've ever taken in my entire life. And they look at me cross-eyed and they say, what? And I said, look, I treated this as if it were the most important test I would ever take in my entire life. And I studied for three hours, two hours a night, five, six days a week for a solid year. I treated it as if it were, if my career depended on it. And whenever you take something as serious as that and put that much energy and effort and concentrate to focus into something, by the time it was time to take the exam, it just seemed easy because I'd been prepping and I'd taken the review course and I was doing all the homework and I was making sure that I did every single thing that I was possibly asked to do. If they said do these for extra credit in the class, I did them. If I got them wrong, I redid them. I treated it like it was the most important exam I ever took
2: and it was easy at the end of it. Interesting. So you wouldn't know this yet. I swear to the audience, this isn't a plant because the episode hasn't come out as of the time you and I are recording this. But by the time your show comes out, this will have come out. We interviewed Tim Garrity from Becker, the national lead instructor for those guys. So that's... Well, tell Tim guy. his Becker
1: class was awesome. I'm sure there are other great classes that are out there. But Tim and I remember there was another guy named Peter that was from like New York that had this really crazy accent when he would talk. I think that was his name. It's been 20 yeah, years ago now, is. but from Peter New York Alinto. or New Jersey. Yeah, Olento. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow. Too cool. Well... Take us through, I guess, your first few years as an accountant, because I know something happened in your career or life where you started to get an itch to try some different things because I saw something about a radio show and then you taught some college courses. So take us through those first few years and how your career sort of progressed.
1: Yeah, sure. So I spent about two years working in public accounting in Indianapolis, Indiana, and my accounting firm was a regional firm that had fantastic folks that were there. It just wasn't the place for me and wasn't right for me. I like to tell people it was about 99% on me and 1% just because it was public accounting. I was from the South originally, so living in Indianapolis, Indiana, I distinctly remember scraping ice off my windshield well into May. All my friends back home were at the lake and hanging out at poolside, and I was scraping ice off my windshield in May. A college friend of mine called me, and he said, hey, my parents' business, they worked in prosthetics, my parents' business has a CPA on staff. Uh, who's our controller, she just told us that she is interested in leaving. Do you have any interest in coming to interview for the position? I said, absolutely do. You know, again, I was scraping ice off my windshield in May, (laughs) working Saturdays during busy season, and just really, it wasn't a great fit for me. God bless you guys and gals that are out there as auditors. I was just not put on this planet to be an auditor. I can appreciate the work, I just wasn't good at it. God bless the people that had to work with me, and that were my seniors and managers on my (laughs) jobs. Those kind souls were just as wonderful as they could be to me. But anyway, so I ended up moving back to Arkansas and worked in corporate for a number of years. And I'm still on staff with JPNO, Jonesboro Prosthetic and Orthotic Lab. So I got a chance to do a bunch of different things inside of JPNO. When I first got there, we were still paper mailing health insurance claim forms out. And I moved everybody to electronic and we moved, instead of getting paid via check in the mail, we were moving to electronic funds transfer. You know, and they had just evolved over the years in their clinical aspects, but some of their administrative processes needed kind of an upstart, a new fresh look at things. That was where I really started and where the rubber hit the road at JPNO, and I got a chance to just do some networking and talk to some different folks. I got this idea of understanding how to take calculated risks, and a calculated risk is something where you sit back and you think about what's the worst possible thing that could happen, and then what are some things that are most likely to happen, and you get a chance to experiment just a little bit. So I think it was one August, two weeks before the semester started. My college professor at Lyon, my accounting professor, Dr. McNamee, he called, again, two weeks before the semester started, and he said, Joseph, he said, we are in a pickle, in a bind. I really need somebody to come in and teach principles of accounting one. I can talk you through a bunch of the different pieces. You can look at my syllabus. You can look at my past tests. We have all these resources and all this different stuff really what I need somebody to do is to somebody to come and teach the class. So I sat back and I visited with my boss about it. And we were able to work out a schedule where I ended up teaching two days a week. And at the time, our business at JPNO was looking at a location in the same town as the college. So that ended up making a little bit of sense as well. And I got a chance to teach college and it was a ton of fun. I was able to bring in, I remember one class we were talking about doing some year-end accruals. And I had just that morning, and this was not planned, had sent over some accrual journal entries to our outside CPA to file our tax return to accrue one week's worth of our two-week payroll to save us X amount of dollars in taxes by doing that. So it was a really cool perspective for me to say, all right, I'm teaching you guys these year-end accruals. I'm going to show you what I did this morning that saved our company X amount of dollars in taxes. So I was able to bring that to the classroom. One of the lessons we talked about the financial statements that are out and available to the stock market, and it was when SodaStream first launched as an IPO in the United States of America. So I was talking to them about you know, how do you evaluate cash flows and how do you evaluate the investment? And I was talking about some of the non-financial aspects. I'm like, well, let me explain this product of SodaStream to you. Do you think it'll take off in the U.S.? Is this something that we think people are going to do? So we were able to kind of talk through whether or not it was a good investment or not, and tie that back to principles of accounting. One, understanding how financial statements work. So I got a chance to have some fun with that. You know, going back to the idea of it being a calculated risk. It was only a couple of months long. It was only a couple of days a week, and you know, my boss knew my work well enough at the time to know that I was going to get the job done no matter what. JPNO is their controller and eventually their CFO. So it was just a kind of a small calculated risk. The worst thing that could have happened is my boss says, no, no, I'm not going to let you go for a couple of hours a week. No, I don't think that you can handle this. Call Dr. be back and tell him that you're not going to be able to do this. So that could have happened. The kids could have looked at me and said, you don't know what you're talking about. I was I was maybe 25 at the time, 24, 25. I was super young, not much older than some of the students, but it was a calculated risk. You, know, you mentioned the radio show. When I was living in Little Rock, there's a public radio station called KABF. It's 88.3. It's something where my mother actually had run a bluegrass show. She was a bluegrass DJ. So all volunteer station, all volunteers that run it, public broadcasting. So it's publicly supported. And my mother was running a bluegrass radio show. And at the time, I was really into listening to Dave. Ramsey and understanding financials and how to work on kind of your personal finance piece and how to train your behaviors and how to use an envelope system and why you need to save for retirement, all this stuff. And I was talking to my mom and she said, you know, the drive time opened up at KBF on Mondays from 5 to 6 p.m. I said, really? She said, you know what, what do you think about going to the radio station and pitching this idea of doing a financial talk radio show. And I said, well, that sounds like a great idea. So again, this is a calculated risk. So I went and I met with John Kane, the station manager, and I laid out my plan. And I said, look, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm not a banker out here trying to sell insurance or mortgages or a credit card company trying to get you to do credit cards or consolidate your loans or a real estate agent trying to tell you to buy a house. I have no dog in this fight. The only thing I want to do is I want to help people. I want to help people understand their money and how it flows. I want to tell them that it's a good idea to save for retirement and you should sign up for direct deposit at your payroll. Here's what a flexible spending account is. Here's the tax benefits of that. Uh, So I ended up running a radio show. I had several guests come on. I had my realtor come on to talk about the real estate market in Little Rock and why you should buy a house and what kind of investment that was. I had somebody come on from a payroll company to explain the ins and outs of how the flex spending accounts and the health savings accounts works. I had just a number of different guests and had some fun with that. So the radio show was, again, just another calculated risk where somebody could have sued me and said I gave out bad advice. But the advice that I was giving out would be really hard to argue with. If you have a job you should sign up for direct deposit instead of getting a check in the mail and it delaying it being in your account. If you have money that's sitting in a non-interest bearing account, see if there's a money market account available. There were just basic stuff that the more and more I talked to friends and family, like people didn't know how to manage money. It's not something that we ever taught in high school. It's not something that was even part of my accounting curriculum, wasn't about how to do a budget for your personal household and how to figure out how much of a mortgage you should buy. None of that stuff was taught. And I felt like that was a gap that I wanted to close for the people at Little Rock.
2: Hmm, Interesting. I think you hinted at this a little earlier. I think I heard the start of some remote work there for a minute. So how did you go from being out of the office, so to speak, to teach this class a couple days a week to 100% remote? Because I know that's going to interest a lot of people. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Yeah. How do you make that work? (laughs) Yeah, great question. So I'd say the number
1: one thing you don't do is walk into your boss's office, slam your fist down on the desk and say, I'm tired of coming to the office. I'm going to do my job 100% remote. Like that would be 101 for what not to do. So I think that one of the things that I've been able to do, especially with remote work, is I've been able to make it easy and I've been able to make it transitionary. And I've also given the caveat that we can walk this back if we need to. So whenever I first originally approached JPNO, I was living in Jonesboro, Arkansas, which was in Northeast Arkansas and had an opportunity to move to Little Rock, Arkansas, which is about a two hour drive between the two. And I approached my boss and I said, Hey, I'd like to continue working for you, even though that I'm going to move to Little Rock. And, you know, one of the things that people are scared of is they're scared of the unknown. So I laid out as much as I possibly could in advance to making this pitch. So I said, I'd like to commute to Jonesboro two days a week and I'd like to work remotely three days a week. Here's what I think that's going to look like. Now, what I would propose to you, Rob, is my boss's name, what I'd propose to you, Rob, is I would propose that we try this out for a couple of months and see if it works. And let's get back together in 60 days and see if you've gotten a chance to feel like I'm still doing the job that you need me to do or not. And if I am, then we'll continue to go along this path if not, we'll walk it back. We'll figure something else out. I think the big thing with remote work, and I think some of the hesitation. I think a lot of it's gone away in the corporate America is that, you know, we were used to for so long managing somebody being in a seat. And it didn't matter if you were getting a job done or whether you were efficient or taking more or less than 40 hours a week. As long as we saw you in that seat, we knew that you were at work and you were hopefully working. And I'm sure that people are listening to this and they're just giggling because that's not managing at all. And what remote work forces you to do is to manage for results. You know, I have a certain number of reports that I spit out every single week. I have a certain number of pieces to the puzzle that I do every two weeks with payroll and 401k deposits. So whenever you can line out the expectations and make sure that the expectations are aligned, these are the things that I'm going to do for you. Here's what that's going to look like. And then also, if this doesn't work out, give us 60 days. Let's try it out. Let's walk it back. I'm sure you've probably read, Mark, listening to you talk about books. I'm sure you've read the four-hour work week. But Tim okay. Ferriss lays all that out in the four-hour work week about how to get remote work done and how to start small and start with some experimentation and figure out what works and figuring out how to consolidate your work and come up with the best ways of getting work done in as quick amount of time remotely as possible. I used Tim Ferriss' playbook. It was fantastic, and worked to the T. So I started out just working a couple of days a week remotely. So that's kind of how I first introduced the concept was basically I'm going to get these things done for you. And I'm going to continue to innovate. I'm going to continue to find ways to better efficiently get things done. I'm going to continue to do all of these things, whether I'm in a chair or not. At the time, he and I didn't even work in the same building. We worked in two different buildings
2: across town, so he
1: couldn't even tell if I was at the office
2: or not. <laughs> Unless somebody picked up the phone and said, hey, Joseph's not at work today. Interesting. At what point did both of you become comfortable enough for you to be taking international trips and getting into different time zones? And I would assume that may make you a little less accessible or I don't know. When did all that happen? Was that a pretty quick evolution or is that taking a few years? Or?
1: Yeah, that took a long time to be able to get to that point. And really it boils down to, does he trust that I'm going to be able to get the job done, whether I'm in Argentina or Honduras, which are two trips that I took this year, and I'll tell you some fun <laughs> stories about working from those places or whether I was in Europe, I did a month-long backpacking trip across Europe and lugged my laptop everywhere around so that I could make sure and get payroll done. For some reason, the people at JPNO didn't want to skip paychecks just because I was traveling through Europe. So I think that trust is a big piece of it. I heard somebody say one time that trust is earned in teaspoons and it's lost in buckets. And as long as you continue to do the things, I mean, we've never bounced a check at JPNO. We've never run out of cash or run out of money or you know not been able to do that. Our employees have never missed payroll because I was off in some wild crazy adventure you know it's just one of those things that over time i was able to build up enough trust and being able to work remotely so anyway, so yeah, I had some changes in my personal life. I think it was 2014, 15, and ended up moving back to Jonesboro. I got a chance to really hone in on what it is that I wanted to do, and I got a chance to do some stuff that was a little bit outside of my comfort zone. I have a buddy of mine, Tanner, that invited me out. and We got a chance to do some kayaking on the Nana Hale River, and if you want, I can tell you a story about that. But I got a chance to really figure out, you know, being chained to a desk For 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week or 60 hours a week, being tied down to this one specific location was just not really what I wanted to do with my life. You know, whenever you live in a place like Jonesboro, Arkansas, and you get two weeks of vacation a year or three weeks or four weeks, two weeks of vacation a year and you want to go visit Glacier National Park in Montana... It's pretty much going to take all of your vacation time by the time you get up there, enjoy yourself, have some fun, and then get all the way back home. So at the end of 2015, I sat down with my boss, Rob, and I said, look, I'd like to scale my job back significantly. I'd like to cut out about 75% of what I do, the day-to-day management of the business. And I've been grooming some leaders inside the company that are now just fantastic leaders for the company. But I'd like to cut out this day-to-day management of the job. I'd like to continue to do this 25%, cut out this 75 and do this 25%. And by the way, you can cut out 75% of my pay. And I ended up moving completely remote. And I did kind of some Tim Ferriss kind of stuff. I put all my stuff in storage and decided to travel the world. Did that for about a year and a half. Got a chance to visit, I think, 11 different countries over the course of that. I got a chance to visit all of the states in the United States. I've now been to all 50 states. I ended up seeing 42 national parks along the way. Stayed with friends and family along the way and did lots of camping, did hotel, hostel, Airbnbs the month of January 2016 backpacking across Europe, getting a chance to see Spain and to see Monaco and Vatican City and Italy and ended up going to France and just had a big time, went to Croatia and Slovenia and spent some time in Eastern Europe, which was super cool as well. But anyway, so I just got to the point where I just said, here are the things that I'm going to do. I, people hate uncertainty. So if you say, well, I'm thinking about moving this thing and, you know, what do you think? Their immediate thoughts going to be to go to fear and to go to uncertainty. So I was able to close a big portion of that gap by laying it all out. I even wrote it all down and put it on a piece of paper for him to take home and think about. And, you know, with the course of our 10-year working relationship at that point, he knew that I was going to get the job done. He knew that this 25% that I said that I was going to do was going to get done. It was going to get done with excellence in a way that wasn't going to cause him any hiccups. It was on him to decide whether he wanted me to do that or not. And we ended up working it out. So anyways, I've been... 100% 100% remote with JPNO for probably almost three years now, since 2016.
2: Wow. And you mentioned running payroll earlier. So some of that 25% of your job that you kept is still deadline oriented. If you have? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. I was actually up in Banff and Jasper National Parks up in Canada working off
1: of a Wi-Fi and I ended up having to do a payroll company conversion while I was up there. It was a major pain in the rear. I ended up cutting about eight hours of what I was planning on doing some hiking or whatever with my buddies up there. ended up having to spend about eight hours getting this payroll transition done so that, you know, one week they were paid by, you know, XYZ payroll company and the next week they were paid by the other. Not something I was planning on happening Because I certainly wouldn't have scheduled that for the time that I was in a remote part of Canada, Banff and Jasper, that I was able to do that. One of the things I was provided with to help me with my remote work was one of those Wi-Fi anywhere hotspots, not through a cell phone, but it looks like a cell phone. It has a cell phone number attached to it. You know, when worse comes to worse, I can't hop on Wi-Fi, I can't launch the VPN. I've always got a way to get online. And as you well know, in the CPA world, if we can get online, we can get hooked into the network and we can do anything that we possibly
2: need to do. That's right. So thinking about like the last couple months, what's a typical week like for you? (laughs) Yeah. How are you So
1: I no longer have stuff in storage. I actually have a place to hang my clothes it's in Frisco, Texas. <laughs> so a normal week, if I'm not traveling, not doing anything, is probably pretty typical to most folks. Get up, uh, get ready for work. One of the things that I read a long time ago about doing remote work and doing work from home is to make sure that you go through the same routine that you would if you were going to the office. To so get up take a shower, put on dress clothes, and be mentally plugged in to work as if you're going to work. So that that has a, a couple of different things. Psychologically, whenever you just kind of roll out of bed, your hair's sticking up, and you wear your PJs, you're not going to bring the same level of professionalism as what this article was saying that I read. And I would say that there's definitely some truth to that. So definitely do that. I get a chance to have a lot of flexibility with my schedule. So you know, I do my best to schedule calls. I don't like to, you know, this call that you and I had was a scheduled call. You didn't just randomly pick up the phone and call me one day. So, most of the people in the business world can appreciate scheduling phone calls and conference calls. It gives you a chance to prepare for it, to think about what might need to be discussed through the call, maybe trade emails back and forth for attachments that we can discuss. It's a pretty typical week whenever I'm not traveling, whenever I'm at the house. Uh, but being remote, I have some opportunities that open up that are pretty exciting. My sister, Uh, lives just right up the road. She lives about 10 minutes up the road in North Texas. And she texted me last night and she said, hey, I'm thinking about taking Grayson, her son, my nephew, who's a year and a half, to the park by your house tomorrow about 10 a.m. Do you want to meet us over there? So rather than taking a lunch from 12 to 1 and going and eating out somewhere, I ended up taking my lunch hour at 10 a.m. and meeting them over at the park and ended up just kind of hanging out at this really nice park, Centennial Park, that's really close to my house. And I got to play with my nephew. If I had commuted 45 minutes across town to an office and was in an office building, like that's just not something that's conducive to being able to say, hey, why don't you meet us over at the park that's right down the road from your house? So so those things are all super fun. 2019, I've had two pretty big trips that have happened this year. I got a chance to do a mission trip to Honduras in February. I don't know if you've ever spent any time in the third world. But Honduras is a very, very poor country economically. And they've got tons and tons of population that are there that are living in stick houses. And I got a chance to work for a week on a mission. I worked for a medical mission. It was part of the Baptist dentist mission out of San Pedro Sula. I went with a team out of South Arkansas, McGee, and we did a medical clinic in this really tiny community. It's called Togopala. So we had a team of physicians, dentists, pharmacists. We had an eye doctor there. All of the people that wanted to receive healthcare services could show up, and they went to a church service. And then after that, they got seen by a physician. In this town of Togopala, there are probably 2,000 people that live there, and there are about five or six villages about that size that surround it. So let's just say an area of 10 to 15,000 people. The medical community served that. Location, they have one doctor and one dentist. So most of these people had never in their entire life ever seen a doctor. Anyways, that was a pretty cool experience. The Mission House had Wi Fi. So if there are any of your listeners that have not ever tried to use Wi Fi to do work in a third world country, I'm sure just by my prefacing it, you can imagine how slow the internet was. But anyways, when I was down in Honduras at the mission house, I'd been waiting on some stuff to do a year-end close for one of my clients. Anyway, so I ended up doing a year-end close. Some of your listeners may be familiar with the accounting platform Zero, a web-based accounting platform. The Wi-Fi was so slow that it could not handle using Zero. Xero crashed the Wi-Fi three or four times for the entire mission house. But I got my year-end close done for my client, got
2: them taken care of. I was curious if there was anything that you sort of learned the hard way or didn't anticipate about being remote, like Wi-Fi, you know, that took a trip. And is there anything else you've had to get used to or anything that surprised you about this whole transition?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of things that jump out. Number one is Whenever you're remote, 100% of the time, you don't really get to take a, quote, vacation where you're able to unplug. Unplugging is very, very difficult, especially if you've got something deadline like a payroll that's got to be run. You know, I got to have 70 timesheets turned in by a certain time, and then that's got to turn into payroll. So it's hard to kind of turn it off. People look at you like your entire life's a vacation whenever you tell them that you're working remotely from Argentina like I was two weeks ago or from Honduras back in February. They don't really have a whole lot of patience for you saying I'm on vacation because they just say, sounds like your whole life is a vacation. So that's been kind of difficult to turn work off. I know that there are some things that I could probably manage better and do that a little bit better. Typically, I almost do all of my communication via email and through the internet. So I've kind of sort of trained folks to know that They can't just pick up the phone and call me and get whatever done. They can send me a message through our messaging app, or they can send me an email. But one of the good things about working in accounting is we're really not dealing with life and death. You know, it's not like a physician. If a physician doesn't answer the phone and they don't get the right advice, somebody may die. In the accounting world, we really don't deal with life and death a whole lot. I heard speakers say that at Edge a couple of years ago. I said, that's so true. Getting used to that has been interesting. You know, I think we're also kind of hardwired to quit work at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, that kind of stuff. But if I'm out hiking in a national park, I'm not going to do that after hours and work all day while the daylight's good. So I may be out hiking in advance until five or six PM and then from seven PM till midnight I'd end up doing payroll or the financial reporting or the month end close or any of that stuff. So so all that's been a little bit of a challenge to get used to. Definitely patience. I was at the bottom of Yellowstone National Park in 2016 trying to run payroll and using their Wi-Fi because of course you have no self service at the bottom of Yellowstone. I was using like the guest Wi-Fi at the guest lodge at the bottom of Yellowstone. It took forever to get the ADP payroll site to load, much less to approve the timesheets to create the payroll to do all my checks and to figure out what I needed to do for 401k and all that stuff. So Wi-Fi and connectivity, Is something that you definitely have to have a little bit of patience if you're moving around. I mean, certainly if you're at a hotel in the middle of the city, you're going to have good Wi-Fi in most places. But finding ways to continue to have the things that you need to get done, done, that's challenging from time to time.
2: Mm. Yeah, I can just see you. Well, I guess I'm going to have to hike back up to the top to run payroll.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I ended up, it's funny, I was, I don't remember where I was, maybe Yosemite. It was someplace like that where I had to drive to the top of the mountain so that I'd get enough cell signal to get like two bars to be able to log into my Wi-Fi and get like an expense report paid for somebody that had to have it tomorrow to go on a trip or something like that. I've definitely done that, drive around in the car to see where your best cell service is so you can hop in and get done what you need to get done. So I ended up taking a conference call. It was funny. I was working on the board of directors for the Arkansas CPA Society. I think it was two years ago. And I took the conference call from a from conference room inside of one of Glacier National Parks Visitor Center. There was no cell service there. So I was Skyped in using my laptop, using their guest Wi-Fi that was slow as Christmas, trying to get everything squared away for this board meeting that I was on for a couple of hours.
2: T-Mobile or AT&T needs to make a commercial out of your story or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be willing
1: to talk to them about that. That'd be big, fun stuff. So can you hear me now at the bottom of Yellowstone?
2: Probably not. That's funny. Before we get to the final question, there's one more thing I try to add in to most of the podcast, and I definitely want to ask you, if you could go back in time and give your younger self just one piece of critical advice based on what you know now, what do you think that would be?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I would say that in my younger career, I had a number of people that wanted to invest in my knowledge and in my career and in my professionalism. And I got some critical feedback from several people over the course of my early career. And my response was, let me tell you why you're not right and why I'm right in this situation. And to spend my time defending my position or getting my feelings hurt because I'm not good enough. And I didn't realize at the time that these people are trying to help me and they're only going to help me if I would listen to them. And they're not being critical just out of meanness. They're trying to help me. Move forward in my career. And I didn't take it that way. I took it as being offended, and they don't think that I'm good enough and let me stand up for my position. And what I realize now, you know, so many years later as I'm developing younger staff, is that it's way easier for me to just come behind and fix it. That takes a whole lot less of my time today. It's a whole lot easier, and I don't have to have this conversation with you. But if someone takes the time to walk you through a problem, show you why the mistake that you made, how to think through it differently next time, rather than get offended, Joseph, you younger self, you need to just sit back and learn and appreciate that they're taking the time to give you some critical feedback, and the only thing they want to do is help you get better. I didn't realize that at the time. That's definitely something I would go back and tell myself.
2: Wow. Thank you. That was a lot deeper than (laughs) I was intending. I thought it was going to be something about world travel, you know, so wow. Okay. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Well, I do end every podcast with the same three questions. It gives us a lot of consistency, and there's a lot of meat in these. First one's usually the easiest. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment?
1: I would say that in 2013, I applied for and was accepted into the AICPA's Leadership Academy program, an elite program that pulls 38 young professionals that are CPAs from across the country between the ages of 25 and 35, and I got a chance to really dig deep and. Appreciate where I was and learn a lot about myself and about where I was going, both from a personal perspective and from a career perspective. I got a chance to meet Barry Malanson and Rich Caterano, and I got a chance to graduate from AICPA's Leadership Academy in 2013, which really catapulted my network, catapulted my opportunity. I've gotten a chance to speak in like 15 different states, at different state CPA societies and AICPA events. That whole process of just getting selected and graduating from the AICPA Leadership Academy definitely was my proudest moment.
2: Interesting. I didn't know about the speaking circuit also. That's a whole other story within a story. That's for sure. <laughs> Well, second question, tell us about a mistake you made and what you learned from it, because that's what we really want. But the bigger, the better. We like the really big, huge, nasty mistakes. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Well,
1: I got a chance to do a lot of different pieces inside of my career. One of the things that I do, as I just mentioned, was I do a ton of professional speaking. And I do a class on negotiations, how to do basic negotiations. And it's based off the book, Getting the Yes, How to Negotiate Agreement Without Giving In, just the classic how to negotiate. One of the principles that I talk about is to separate the people from the problem. And whenever you have human beings involved, you have emotions, you have different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different ways that you were raised, different, you know, religions and philosophies and all of this different stuff. Anyways, I was working on an acquisition earlier in my career. And anyway, so we had somebody call us and said, Hey, this guy wants to sell his practice. Uh, are you guys interested? So he said, Yeah, 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 sure we're interested. The first thing they asked us to sign, of course, was a non-disclosure agreement. And not without getting too much into the details of what all transpired, but I clued in another one of our staff members that we had an acquisition on the table. And the staff member did something that was detrimental to this other guy's business, completely unintentionally, not exactly the way that we thought it was going to go. But anyways, basically tipped the hand that this business was for sale. Their employee quit, left them in a really, really tough situation. So I think that was probably looking back, one of my biggest mistakes was violating an NDA and really what I feel like put my employer in a really, really tough spot We certainly could have been sued. We could have done any number of things. And we worked with this negotiator. Of course, the other side was really upset. We violated the NDA. I was upset because I thought we were going to get sued and we were going to lose our whole business. And of course, I had this very, very dark picture painted in my mind of how things were going to go. And this negotiator got us all on the phone after all of this had transpired. and He said, why don't we just take these other people out of it? Let's just take these people out of it and let's look at what we've got going on. This guy wants to sell. You guys want to own the market. Let's focus on the problem and not on the individual people. So that definitely was a couple of dark days for me as I was trying to figure out. I had in my mind I was going to get fired. We were going to get sued. We were going to lose everything that we'd worked so hard to build over all these years. That was definitely something. So I'd say to anybody that's out there, if you sign a non-disclosure agreement, do not disclose anybody that's not a party to that NDA. It will save yourself a lot of headache and heartache. We ended up working it out, and it's a really good story of negotiations because we were able to eventually separate the people from the problem and really get focused in on what it was that we were trying to accomplish and the other side was trying to accomplish in a way where we weren't saying, you know, your people lied and my people lied. And you violated this and that. But don't violate an NDA. Bad idea.
2: There you go. You know, and you hit on this earlier, we can certainly make some huge mistakes that Make a lot of people very angry, but we're not dealing with life and death. Which, thank goodness, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Thank I can't imagine what it would be like to be an emergency room physician who is dealing with life and death every day. Probably why we chose accounting—a <laughs> little bit less stressful situation.
2: <laughs> and, then, and there's the whole fainting at the sight of blood thing, but that's yeah. The there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? I don't know that
1: I'd say that it was something that I received directly, but I'm a big reader. I've mentioned books and every time I get a chance to speak. One of my favorite authors was a motivational speaker from the 80s. His name was Zig Ziglar. I don't know if, Mark, you've ever read any Zig Ziglar or familiar with his work. But Zig Ziglar, he was a motivational speaker and leadership author from Yazoo City, Mississippi. He had a big southern draw, being from Yazoo City, Mississippi. One of his most famous quotes is something that I've taken to heart quite a bit over the course of my career. And I'd call it the best piece of advice I ever received, even though he didn't call me on the phone and tell me. But Zig says, that you can have anything in life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. And that has been instrumental. I think that gets to the topic of servant leadership. That gets to the topic of helping people, really just getting a chance to serve our fellow human beings and help make the world a better place. And whenever you do that, when you have a servant's mentality, you'll be able to get anything that you want. If you help
2: enough other people, get what they want. Wow. Wow. You know, I should have an award for this, because I don't think anyone has ever finished the show with a quote from Zig Ziglar. I mean, that just adds a new level of class for us. (laughs) Zig was born to win. I love Zig Ziglar. Go to your library. Check out his audio books. You'll love them. There you go. Well, that really is wonderful to to end this on. For the audience, this has been Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. If you haven't visited our website, please do so. We're going to have the show notes for Joseph's episode here. We have the show notes for all our episodes. We're going to have links as well to the books that he's mentioned because I want to make sure that we make those easy for you guys to find. You can find all that at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. Dot com. On that note, Joseph, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave with the listening audience?
1: I think one of the things that I would leave is don't be afraid to fail. Figure out a way to take calculated risks and figure out what you're interested in. And you'll be amazed at the different things that you'll be able to accomplish. Help enough other people get what they want. You'll be able to get what you want. And don't be afraid to fail. Take small calculated risks.
2: Beautiful. Well, thank you again to the audience for joining us. We will see everyone next week. There's more to come.